Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Annette Castle podcast. I'm Daniel Watkins. And I'm Deborah Beecroft. And with our guest on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about deaths, specifically the 1,000 years of royal deaths that feature in the new book, Mortal Monarchs. You may have seen the author of the book, Susie Edge, through her TikTok channel, where she explains human body histories to over 300,000 followers. We spoke to Susie over video call about Mortal Monarchs and some of the historical deaths that appear in the book, which are quite familiar from some of Annick Castle's own history. The conversation did touch on some gruesome medical details, so this is just a warning to those of you who are a little squeamish that you might want to cover your ears at some of the more gory bits. If you want to skip ahead on any of those bits, I'll put some timestamps in the episode description so you'll know exactly where the grisly parts are coming. Here's our conversation with Susie, and we hope you enjoy it. We're very happy to be joined on this episode of the Anna Castle podcast by Susie Edge, the author of Mortal Monarchs, 1000 Years of Royal Deaths. How are you, Susie? I'm so well, thank you. And thank you for asking me to come and chat. It's a pleasure. Very welcome. Very excited. Both Daniel and I have read the book, so we're looking forward to chatting a little bit about it. So can you tell me how it came about? Yeah, so the book Mortal Monarchs came about because I, at first I was a doctor and um, I got a bit disillusioned whilst working as a doctor. I was working in orthopaedic surgery and I thought I need to do something else. And I had a huge chip on my shoulder about the fact that I had, when you become a doctor, when you decide quite young, actually, that you want to be a doctor, you have to put aside other interests because there's so much in in the science work field. And I couldn't study history the way I wanted to. So years later, when I had the funds, and, and I was going to say the time, didn't have that, but when I had the funds, I went back <laughs> and I did I did a master's in modern history, and I just loved it, learning to, to read and write and, and research in this non-clinical way, because for years I've been just heading clinical papers, particularly biochemistry, which is mind-blowing. I did that, and then at the same time, my children were absolutely obsessed with horrible histories, and obviously they had a little bit of help in that obsession from their mum. Uh, I think I think what was happening was they were watching one episode and then going off to do something else, and I'd be left to watch another three or four. <laughs> and I loved that, and and so that really got me into it. And, and I had this game with the with my girls, where it was really geeky. If we were out and about, and there was a number or a date or something came up, I'd say, you know, you know, sometimes you get a date on a building or what have you. And I'd say, who was on the throne? And they would tell me instantly. So I'd say, who was on the throne in 1415? And they'd throw back Henry V at me. And, and I'd be like, it's just getting a bit dull because they know all the answers. So I started so I started asking silly questions that would start conversations like, and how did they die? Because obviously that's you know what parents talk about with their children. And then I thought one day this would make a great, just bringing all these together would be a lot of fun. And the book, the book really is about how all the different ways that all the different ways you can die, different things that happen to the body. But but I did it over over that thousand years looking at the different kings and queens, because there are so many wonderful stories. And, and I just thought it came together really well. Did you find that having that medical background helped inform the way you looked at history uh, or was it quite difficult to align the two ways of looking at these deaths? I think one of the things it really did was made me understand that anything that I was writing, any resource that I was looking at, I had to understand who was writing it and why they were writing it. And in science nowadays, you look at what is the person going to gain from this? Who's paying for this bit of research to make this vaccine? Who's going to earn from it? And that was really in my mind a lot during this. And I think that comes through in the book that you have to understand that the person writing the stories had an agenda. 
it might not have been financial the way it tends to be in medicine, but certainly there was an agenda. Perhaps it was a religious one or something like that. that yeah, that, that, so that, there was a bit of a crossover there. And was it just fun to write? Oh, fun to write all the deaths. <laughs> it was so much fun that my family got fed up with me because I'd be like, guys, 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 I'll just tell you this story. And they're like, yes, we'll read the book. <laughs> well done. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's enormous amount of fun. I think that, you know, it does cover a big range. My interest, my particular interest is more the long 19th century, Napoleonic Wars, that sort of era. But I was able to go and look at all sorts of different areas and find that I had big, big chunks of knowledge missing or I had, you know, there, there, there are armies of Tudor enthusiasts out there who are very, very knowledgeable, who had a lot to teach me. And that was that was a lot of fun. You mentioned a few times in the book that particular kings or queens had quite fitting or suitable deaths. Going back to what you said about writing with an agenda, do you think that some of those more fitting deaths were twisted a little bit from what actually happened? Very much so. Hugely twisted and embellished to make the writers look good or to make the next monarch look good. So, you know, we start, start off the book with the death of uh, Edward the Confessor. Edward the Confessor was a pious man and we're, we're supposed to like him. We're supposed to you know have a warm, fuzzy feeling when we think about Edward the Confessor. And so his death, there was nothing gory about it. There was nothing. There was no exploding, decaying body because he was saintly. And saints were, were said to not decay and rot in, in the way that everyone else did. And, and so so you start there. But then very quickly, we move on to somebody who people didn't like very much, who was William I. He did a lot of bad things, particularly in the north of England, who um, was written that he that he that his body exploded and that it filled the nostrils of everybody around and that the putrefying decay was the worst thing in the world. And so... So yeah, there was definitely. <laughs> you can look at them all and say if they had a if they had a sort of I was going to say easy or comfortable. I can't really come up with the word, but if they had a death that wasn't particularly horribly violent or gruesome, then we're we're sort of supposed to think good about them. And the king in between Edward and William was Harold Godwinson, who was there's a famous story about him being killed by an arrow to the eye. And that brings in one of the most famous deaths in Annick Castle's history, which is Harry Hotspur, who's said to have been killed the same way at the Battle of Shrewsbury in 1403. So we might get into some grisly details now. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened when you get an arrow injury in a battle like that? Was it always fatal like it was for Hotspur? Well, it wasn't always fatal. I mean, it, you know, it's a pretty... So it's a pretty grim thing, isn't it? Arrows are a sharp object. And when it hits the eye, the eye is just going to explode straight away. Behind the eye, there's a very thin layer of bone. And that's supposed to be thin because if you get hit, if you get a blunt trauma to the eye, I'm I'm sort of putting my hand over my eye as if everyone could see me. But if you get a blunt trauma to the eye, like a squash ball or something, hits your eye. The thin layer of bone at the back is designed to be a sort of crumpled zone. It's a a little bit like a car. You know, you see cars that are horrendous crumpled states and somebody walks free. It's because all the energy went into the, the, the car and not into the person inside. And that's what happens with this really thin layer of bone behind the eye. It breaks. This isn't a blunt object, though. This is a sharp object. It's going to go right through that little thin layer of bone and it's going to go into the brain and it's going to cause a lot of trouble in the brain with bleeding and swelling. And and you can very quickly, uh, very quickly pass out from that. But you can also you can survive getting an arrow in the face because at the same battle, Henry V got an arrow in the face in Shrewsbury. His wasn't in the eye, it was further down, went through the bone below the eye there and lodged deep inside. And um, 
rather wonderfully there, there was a, a contraption made which was allowed for the sort of opening of the wound and the grabbing of that piece of metal in his face and pulling it out and that's why we see when we see portraits of Henry he's always in profile because I guess nobody wanted to paint the scar on the other side of his face so yeah you, you, of course you can survive that do you know that I didn't know because I'm because I've always told the story of Henry V getting that arrow in his face and surviving because I knew that Hotspur died at Shrewsbury as well. I didn't know it was an arrow in the face. That's brilliant. That's what it's said to be. Well, this yeah. is it. This is it, you see. And of course, it's said to be with Harold as well, because the arrow in the eye is the, the, the blinding is a representation. Um, it, it, it talks of morality blinding, and that's why it often comes up in these stories. Yeah, there's a couple of different versions about Hotspur's death, some of him being killed in the general melee of the battle. But the one that gets told here at the castle is... The battle's in its closing stages. He lifts up the visor on his helmet ah. and from across the battlefield comes the fatal arrow. Yeah, because even if it's not true, it's a good story to tell, isn't yeah. it? So we, we tell it. <laughs> it's the case with all of them, isn't it? But it does lead to, um, you know, even if these stories aren't true or not, it does then lead to this this thing that we've been, this theme that we've been talking about, that, you know, how we tell stories and 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 why we tell them and how we embellish them and who's telling them. It's all as important as the story because, I mean, do people want to feel that way about Hotspur? As you're looking at the deaths of historical figures and the details of the deaths, do you think it helps people understand how they lived at the time? I think it does because if you look over the thousand years, and actually it has been pointed out to me that it was 900 years, but... <laughs> but <laughs> since I wrote the book, it has now become a thousand years, having lost uh, Her Majesty the Queen. But as, as you look at, by the by, as you look over those thousand years, you see this trend in in, in deaths that, that mirrors the population. So early on, there's a lot of there's a lot of trauma, there's a lot of violence, there's infections that we can do nothing about, and that sort of morphs later on. There's less trauma, there's less violence, but there's, there's infections are a real problem. And then you've got the more modern diseases, the more metabolic, common lifestyle uh, related diseases that we all struggle with now. So it, it does, it really does show that change in medicals, the wrong word, but that change in sort of bodily influences over the years. I think you could tell that in the book because as I was reading it, it definitely changed the types of deaths the further to the present that became, it was a lot more sort of you say not so nice diseases and deaths at the beginning and it sort of moved forward into ones that were to do more with lifestyle and things like that wasn't it yeah and I've been asked recently about writing a, a another book that is looks at the French kings and queens or the or maybe the Roman emperors and, and, and their deaths but actually I think that would create the same book because you've got the same issues, you've got the same problems and you've got the same deaths. And I'm very much describing, although we talk about the, the context with each of the monarchs and how they lived and what we were doing and uh, what have you, that the how they died was the important part of the story. And if I were to do that with other monarchs, I'd have the same story, <laughs> I'd have the same, the same themes going all the way through. How much detective work is there in trying to figure out actual causes of death based on what can be sometimes quite limited information about how somebody died hundreds of years ago? 
a lot of the things that are written about the the deaths of the kings and queens were stuff that we don't necessarily use today. So invoking ideas of patron saints. So Henry V having a disease known as St. Fierke's disease. And St. Fierke was a patron saint of things like perianal conditions or hemorrhoids or rectal problems and that sort of thing. And we've got more idea now about what they could be. We've got ideas about Crohn's and we've got ideas about cancers and, and that sort of thing. So you, there, there is a certain amount of detective work and extra that you could look at with modern eyes and modern ideas of disease and that I found that really interesting to be able to do. There are some deaths in the book that seem quite straightforward like beheadings and Anne Boleyn comes up as one of the first major beheadings in the book and that's the same fate that befell multiple members of the Percy family here at the castle during the Tudor period. To get into the grisly gory bits again Could you tell us a little bit about what happened to Anne medically when that took place? Is it typical of an execution in that way? The first time I started talking about the deaths, everyone said, oh, Charles I, he won't be be very interesting because he just lost his head. But to me, it was really interesting because, as you say, it wasn't just him. There were lots of them, Anne and Catherine as well, Henry's wives, and Percy's, (laughs) clearly a lot of them. So much would have been going on inside their bodies in the lead up to that moment. The body's going to be having this fight or flight response going on. So it's it's going to be pushing out uh, catecholamines, the adrenaline, the noradrenaline into the bloodstream to to get ready to, to fight or to run away. And glucose as well, it's going to be throwing that out into the bloodstream because that helps with the, the, the use of the muscles if you're going to be grappling with someone or if you're going to be running. And so... The, uh, there's a response to that. So the gut, the gut's not really needed at this time. So that sort of stops working. And, and also the mouth would go really dry. The heart rate would go up. The breathing rate would go up. There would be a, a huge physiological response in that moment before the axe came down. And the axe then, of course, would go through the skin and the muscles. But once it went through the spinal cord at the top of the head, then it would be very quickly lights out. I'm going to talk about another death now. You say that it is possible to die of a broken heart. Yeah. Um, the first Baron Percy of Annick uh, is said to have died of a broken heart like King James V of Scotland. And so was the sixth Earl of Northumberland, who was possibly Anne Boleyn's lover. So how do you medically die this way? Do you know, I'm beginning to, to get the idea that uh, it's a pretty dangerous place, Annick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, avoid it now as I as I drive north now I'm going to be like taking a wide berth <laughs> um, yeah do you know it is possible to die of a broken heart and a lot of historians over the years have looked at the story of James V of Scotland and said yeah it's not really possible he obviously had an infection or something but you can and there's a condition called tachypsubocardiomyopathy which happens when again it's the same scenario where the person's been given a big shock and in that instance, uh, there's this huge surge of the adrenalines and noradrenalines and catecholamines come into the blood. But they have a, a direct insult. They, they make a direct insult onto the, the heart, the muscle of the heart. And at the, the apex of the heart, it damages it and it balloons out and it makes it hard to pump the blood, which is its job. That muscle needs to be strong and to pump the blood around. And if this happens to the to the muscle, then it can't do that properly. And what happens is you end up with a heart failure and that can be fatal. So when you hear people say that they've, they've had this enormous shock and, um, you know, they've collapsed and they've died, it could well be that somebody has had 
this uh, this condition and they've died of a broken heart. James V had been told that his armies had lost uh, to the English at the Battle of Solway Moss and he died a few days later after collapsing upon hearing that news. Quite sad for him, really. It is. And of course, his, his daughter, Mary, was only a few days old and, uh, and she became Mary, Queen of Scots. I think she was only nine days old or a week old or something. And her eventual end brings us right back to beheading, I guess. Beheading, yes, of course, it all comes back to that. <laughs> was there a royal death that really captured your imagination and fascinated you more than any of the others? Do you have a favourite's probably the wrong word, but one that really interested you? People often ask me which is my favourite, and, and I, I don't think it is a favourite. I think it just, I enjoy talking about it, would be the death of Edward II. Because Edward II, we're taught, at a really young age, was killed because he was held down and he had a red-hot poker shoved up his rear end. And in the book, actually, I discussed whether or not, well, you can sort of tickle the rear end with a red-hot poker, it's not going to kill you. So we discussed, actually, what had to happen with that red-hot poker. How far did it have to go? What damage did it have to do? And that's probably the most gruesome, I think. And and that's the one where people question my sanity, I think. But there's another death story which really caught my imagination because... It's not really well known. And that is the death of Mary II. Mary II being of William and Mary. She died of smallpox, but it wasn't just smallpox. It was a, it was a rarer form of smallpox called hemorrhagic smallpox. And what happens in that is that the, the pustules with the infection, they blacken and the skin, they're sort of necrosis and all those, those patches join together. And Mary swelled up and she died a really, I, I think it was a really horrific smallpox death. It's not really well known. And yeah, it's it's one of those ones where I don't like to tell that one. I tell that one when we talk about smallpox and the eradication of smallpox. Smallpox itself is horrific. But when you add the, the hemorrhagic part where the person's bleeding from their mucosal membranes, so that the lips and, and what have you, and then bleeding into their urine and, and basically turning black. It's pretty horrific stuff. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Agreed. Do, do you know, we did. We did. We did that then without the video on, and I didn't get to see your faces at that point. But it was a. There was a pause and a yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a slightly greener colour than at the start of the question. <laughs> Sorry I'm about a that. Greenish, so it didn't affect me in quite the same way. A lot of the monarchs had their remains examined later on in later centuries, the Georgian Victorian period in particular, is there anybody that you would like to examine if you could? I really struggle with my morals on this one. <laughs> I go back and forth. I swing back and forth. The bones that I would really love to be involved having a look at are the bones that belong to, or the bones that are thought to belong to the princes in the tower. They are in an urn in Westminster Abbey. They were bones that were found in the in the tower of children. They might or might not belong to those boys, but they are uh, held within Westminster Abbey as if they do belong to those boys. And I think that we're not going to know. We're not going to know, even if you could do DNA testing and say exactly who the boys are, we're not going to know who killed them or how they died. Uh, so there's part of me that says, leave them alone. They're absolutely fine. They've, they've been in there a while. It's not going to change much. But there's another part of me that says that these bones might belong to someone else's children. And therefore, maybe they do need to be acknowledged and reburied. And the thing is that for a long time, I was like, leave the boys alone. It's not fair. You can't dig them up. I'm not a particularly religious person, but I do have a, an understanding and an acknowledgement of the fact that when you have a Christian burial, it's expected that your, your body be left to rest in peace. And so part of me just wants to leave them alone 
But then the real curious part of me says, if somebody knocked on the door and said, take part in a programme, we're going to dig up these bodies and, and examine them, I'd be like, I'm there. I'm there in a shot. <laughs> Book me a flight to London. I'm on the way. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I swing around and I do question I question myself at times. But, um, yeah, I, don't, I think I think a little bit more investigation into those bones would be would be good fun. But like you say, you would still not actually know what happened to them. So that mystery would still remain. Yeah, I mean, the, the only the only thing that you could perhaps glean is is whether or not... Well, I mean, there's a couple of things. One would be that the chances of getting DNA evidence out of them is low, but there is a chance it could be in there. And, of course, we have the DNA belonging to Richard III, so, you know, there's close relatives. You can make comparisons. The other thing is that if there's any signs of trauma, trauma enough that went down to the bone, because you can have a traumatic effect that doesn't touch the bones. You could get a knife through between the ribs into the heart, kill somebody, and there's no evidence left on bone. So there could be something like that in there. But it's so slim. It's so slim getting an understanding of... And even if you could look at it and say, these these were the princes in the tower, they were murdered, here's the evidence, you still wouldn't know who did it. And that, that's the real mystery. Yeah. I have one final question, which is uh, after having written and completed and published this book, do you still have these historical games and challenges with your daughters? And do they know the answers as quickly now that you've got the book to back you up? <laughs> I do indeed. And, um, and they've just moved on to other things as well. So um, I've moved on to other body parts, stories and uh, and silly things like that. The, the girls are, so my, my eldest is just going into her first set, uh, set of exams. There are national five exams here in Scotland, the equivalent of GCSEs. She's been studying Mary Queen of Scots, and so I think she's been putting her hand up in class and and, and giving extra <laughs> extra details to the story, which I find very funny. Uh, her teachers must be rolling their eyes at that. But yeah, we still play those games. And I've still I've still got their attention for a little bit longer. So your book is out now from Wildfire Books. Um, is there anywhere that people can find you online uh, if they'd like to hear more from you? Absolutely. Yeah, I tell stories mostly on TikTok. Uh, I love that real short format storytelling on there. And uh, that sort of branches out into all the other social media as well. So you can find me on TikTok at Susie Edge and on Twitter at Susie Edge and on Instagram at Suze.edge. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel and I have a podcast which is on hold at the moment because I'm writing another book and that's hard work. <laughs> and of course, the book you can find in, uh, in on Amazon and in all good bookshops, they say. Excellent. Yes. And we, we do recommend it, particularly if uh, you find that medical side of history really interesting. Mm -hmm. So all that's left for us to say is uh, thank you very much for joining us on the Annette Castle podcast. And we hope to have you back when you have your next book. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Great questions. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, we do recommend Susie's book, Mortal Monarchs, A Thousand Years of Royal Deaths, which is available to buy online and from all good bookshops. We have both read it and it is very good, uh, very funny at points. It's very easy to read. Yes. The gory medical bits do not spare any details, but the history behind them is always really interesting. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. Um, and if you did, we'd very much appreciate any ratings or reviews you can leave for us on our podcast platform and to recommend Annick Castle podcast to any friends and family. We'll be back in two weeks with a look at another aspect of the castle and its history. But until then, I've been Daniel. And I've been Deborah. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.